Father, we take this moment, this morning, to consider with gratefulness the advantage that we have this side of redemptive history. As we read in the pages of your scriptures, the age-old hope that a Messiah would come. The anguish of the heart crying out for a Savior for centuries and centuries through the ages. And then, Lord, as the countdown of your perfect timing reached that moment of fulfillment, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, was born of a woman. In his incarnation, he took on flesh. The second person of the Trinity, forever God, became a man. Became a man to accomplish our salvation in his work on Calvary, taking upon himself our sin and being crucified, an object of the wrath of God and judgment, punishment we deserved in our place. Here again, there was a countdown, and three short days later, Lord, as the world waited with bated breath for what would happen next, that stone was rolled away to find an empty tomb. And Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, had burst the seal. He had thrown back the guards. He had defeated death. He had conquered our sin. And he had risen never to die again. This Jesus, our Lord and Savior, with resurrected body, gloriously now revealed himself for 40 days to our forebears in the faith, the early church learned the reason for his suffering. Father, and then, as the heavens welcomed him to his seated throne at the right hand of the majesty on high, your church was given the commission to tell everyone this news that forever changed history. That is why we are here. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to live in light of the resurrection, of the boldness and authority that the church contains as a result of their ambassador call to represent Christ to a lost and broken, dead, dying, blind world, might indwell us once again, so that we might be counted among those with the opportunities you give, to turn the world upside down with the news of a risen and ascended Savior who was crucified for sinners. Lord, I pray that all these things would quicken our hearts to salvation, to praise, to sanctification, and to faithfulness. May you be glorified in the preaching of your word, in the hearing and application of the same, to the praise of your name and advance of your kingdom, Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Hallelujah. He is risen, church. He is risen indeed. This morning, with hearts I trust, freshly reminded of the glories of our salvation and the awesome power of our God and Savior, we turn to the scriptures to return once again to the significance, the implications, and the message of resurrection. And today is second in a series I began last year around this time, where I'm picking up on the sermons that were preached after the resurrection. This will be the second one recorded in the scriptures. You can turn there with me to Acts chapter 3. Peter, freshly filled with the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of the implication and power of the resurrection, cannot help but proclaim these things as the Lord places him in opportune moments before audiences of people that have no idea what's going on. And Peter opens their eyes to the proclamation of the truth, to the glorious eternal reality of a risen and ascended Savior. So our first resurrection sermon we covered, as I mentioned last week, was in the prior chapter, Acts chapter 2. And here Peter preaches boldly the implications of what Jesus has done. It's not too long after that, that Peter and his buddy John are in the temple. Before they enter, they have the opportunity to encounter a lame man. 
We'll touch upon that briefly. And then a further opportunity, crowd is gathered, and they proclaim the news to them as well. The aim of this morning's message is to do something of the same thing, to proclaim resurrection truth according to apostolic example, if you will. To take the example of Peter and to proclaim the same, to echo his words and to apply them to our lives today. My title for this morning's message is the second resurrection sermon. With that introduction in your hearts, in reverence for the Word of God, would you stand as you're able with me and let us behold the Word of God in your hearing today? This is Acts 3, 11 through 26. Here is the infallible, inerrant Word of the Lord. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by this? Or why do you stare at us uh, as though by this, by our own power, excuse me, or piety, we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom the heavens must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> now this message we have just heard from Acts 3, 12 to 26, was preceded by a miracle. You can hear reference in Peter's words. In verses 1 through 11, we have kind of the setting of this situation. Peter and John, it says, verse 1, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And verse 2 gives us a detail. A man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those who enter the temple. So kids, a little question for you. What does it mean to be lame? If you're lame, it means you can't? That is correct. And this man could not walk ever since he was born. And you get the picture, don't you? Every single day, he goes to the place 
where hope might be found. But day after day, he is resorted to begging, asking for a little money, so it alms is, money to help the poor, compassionately given here and there, and the pocket change of those who enter the temple courts. And this is what his life has been. He's an adult now, and he's confined to this same routine day after day. Peter and John meet him here. Seeing Peter, verse 3, and John go into the temple, he, this man, asked for alms. And my interjection, sirs, please, a little money for the poor? I'm a man lame since birth. Giving his familiar cry, Peter directed his gaze at him, verse 4, as did John, and said, look at us. And he, the man, fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. They're not rummaging in their pockets. He doesn't hear any change clanking back and forth. And he hears first bad news and then good. The bad news is this. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. What could this be? The man might think. Uh, Well wishes. God bless you, good sir. I'll say a prayer for you as I go into the temple. Well, Peter continues. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Rise up and walk. Verse 7, he took him by the right hand. Peter reaches down and grasps this man, no doubt. He's bewildered, rubbing his eyes. He doesn't know what's going on. He, out of instinct, grabs the man's hand, I, I imagine, and immediately, the scriptures say, his feet and ankles were made strong. A recreative miracle, a resurrection from lameness, if you will, and both feet and ankles occurred in that moment. Verse 8. What happens next? Kids, you remember what the guy did after that? In a minute, not only did his strength return to him, but he instantly knew how to walk, and his vertical was awesome. He was jumping up and down, running around, praising the Lord. Verse 8, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, begging for money. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. Shortly thereafter, we pick up on our text, a crowd gathers. What is the meaning of this? Who is responsible for this miracle? We come here every day to worship and this man has greeted us and suddenly he's walking and leaping. They're all all testifying to an undeniable creative miracle. Verses 1 through 11 of Acts chapter 3 mark the occasion, the occurrence of this miracle, which sets the context and the characters, the background and the setting for Peter's second resurrection sermon on record in the early church. As a commentator, Ellicott, he writes the following to give us a little bit of history about and to give us an understanding of the situation, the approaches of the temple, he says, like those of modern mosques, were commonly thronged with the blind, lame, and other mendicants. Another word for beggar. The practice was common, he says, at Constantinople in the time of Chrysostom, and has prevailed largely through Christendom. That is, those who could not help themselves very well would tend to gather at these places of religious significance and ask for help, as if the only place, their last ditch of hope. A lame man might fall into the category if God might use his infirmity to his spirit's advantage of the poor in spirit, those recognizing that they ought to just drop the facade of self-determination and self-independence. They know full well 
They're daily reminded of their weaknesses and their infirmity, their dependence on the Lord. And so they place, perhaps more willingly in this light, their hope in him. And this man received more than just hope. He received a resurrection in his legs. And inasmuch as he was a believer in this moment, he is risen even now upon his death to glory and awaits those who likewise trust in Jesus Christ as their healer, not just of their physical body one day, but of their heart transformation. Luke's account sets the stage for the second resurrection sermon with the healing of a lame man who had been begging at the temple gate beautiful. This miracle performed by Peter and John signaled the presence of the Holy Spirit upon his church, the authority delegated to Jesus' apostles, and the reality of resurrection power. Those things were evident in this miracle. There was authority that was resting upon Peter and John. The Holy Spirit had visited them on Pentecost to give them ability even to perform signs and wonders and especially to proclaim the gospel. And, they also, and the reality of resurrection power was not only evident in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, but people were rising as well from their various infirmities, including this man. This further testified, or this further testifying to the power, work, and name of Jesus Christ. Peter, direct, his directives in healing the man also evoke resurrection. He says, rise and walk, just as Jesus had commanded Lazarus, come forth. And that cosmic call from glory on the third day of Jesus' death arise. And so he bursts forth from the tomb in his glorified body. Thus we read of the first specifically documented apostolic miracle. So the first one of the apostles recorded in scripture. But this would be the first of many. Chapter 243 tells us that, that the preaching of the gospel was initially marked by many signs and wonders, like we, the one we just read. In this act, Peter and John introduced themselves as witnesses to the resurrection, and they, by extension, are witnesses to the Great Commission, the end of Matthew 28, the ascension, the beginning of this book in Acts and Pentecost, where the promised Holy Spirit visited the early church just a couple chapters before awesome. The application for us are many, varied, and powerful. This story and this event illustrate, I suggest, the difference that resurrection makes in the soul when the spirit, yes, even our spirits awaken to its reality and implications. If you truly believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, it changes everything. Consider Peter himself, the church, and Peter <coughs> as a representative experienced a dramatic change just weeks before perhaps two months or so he was a christ he was cowering in christ denying fear the dramatic change in peter and company went from cowering in christ denying fear to civil authority defying boldness christ denying fear before the resurrection after the resurrection and the indwelling of the holy spirit civil authority defying boldness Time and again, Peter and John were arrested for this kind of thing, and they confront the authorities, even in this instance, in the very next chapter. What can account for this dramatic change in their confession and in their souls? Well, the resurrection is one of the primary answers to that question. The church itself exists in essence and authority by virtue of the resurrection of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, you and I would not be here. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ has proved powerful enough to gather his people, his followers, those who confess faith in his name for 2,000 years to celebrate that glorious moment. And that resurrection will prove powerful enough to continue to gather his people until the day Peter prophesies about when he returns. Will you be found among them? I pray that you will. And if you are, and if that endurance is marked in your own soul, it will be because you truly believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead. And the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead now dwells in you, saving you from your sins and giving you the ability to follow him and to wait for his soon return. Here's a heading and several points to consider Peter's sermon more <clears throat> in a more detailed way this morning. As a resurrection witness, Peter proclaims the gospel in three ways, or three elements. He proclaims the gospel of true power and piety, piety meaning holiness. Peter says, it's not our power and holiness that you witness here, but instead true power and piety on display. Secondly, Peter proclaims the gospel foretold and fulfilled. He references prior messages anticipating the coming Messiah. And finally, and specifically in this regard, he proclaims the gospel of Moses and his legacy. Let's begin noting true power and piety in verses 12 through 16. Peter says again, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Hey, don't look at us. We're not taking credit for this miracle. This isn't our doing. We're merely ambassadors and vessels. We are merely witnesses of a greater, much greater power and holiness. They point beyond themselves to who? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. In doing this, Peter is preaching according to the covenant. What is a covenant? Kids, can you tell us what a covenant is? Does anyone have a definition? It's an agreement between two or more parties or right? Or another term is promise. So an arrangement. When we read of covenant in scripture, this is review, but it's essential. It's an agreement or an arrangement, especially between God and man. And the nature of this relationship goes all the way back to the very beginning. Of course, the covenant with Adam was broken in original sin and in the fall. But that covenant promise then was reinstated as Jesus, or as the Lord himself proclaimed to Adam and Eve that a way would be made for them to be restored to fellowship with the Lord. And then Abraham is called and given a particular relationship that would symbolically hold out hope for this future Messiah. Then later the covenant is reiterated to others like David and so forth. And so in the references to the Lord through the scriptures, we find him, uh, we find him identified with his promises to his people. And this is the context in which Peter introduces his message. That I proclaim and announce to you the power and holiness of the God of the covenant. That is the God who made promises to your forefather Abraham. The God who made promises to your forebearer Isaac. The God of your ancestor Jacob. Now as Peter does this, he's proclaiming a gospel according to the covenant. And it's also holding his hearers accountable. You should know what this is. He's basically telling them. The fact that you are blind to what's going on here is testimony against you. Peter's saying, if you truly knew the God of Abraham, 
If you truly knew the God of Isaac and of Jacob, you would understand what has happened here, and you would not have crucified your Messiah and Savior. You are guilty, and this much more so, because the covenant testifies against you. <clears throat> if your, fair, your forebears and ancestors, Peter proclaims, knew the Lord, they knew Yahweh, they would have recognized Jesus when he came. They recognized him by faith, but he's proclaiming to them, yet you don't. Paul repeats this pattern, by the way. Peter here is speaking to people who have a, an ethnic background in Judaism. They have a history with the revealed Old Testament, even in their family lines. But Peter would go out, or I'm sorry, Paul would go out later and proclaim to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 17. But note, he uses the same pattern. He begins with a covenantal appeal as well. Paul, this is 17.22, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, which is you know, a place where the philosophers would talk about the big questions of life and the most important things like meaning and transcendence and who is God and is there a sovereign and those kinds of things. Men of Athens, he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed objects of your worship. I found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. And it goes on this way. Basically, what Paul is saying is he's stopping in the midst, taking opportunity of these people who are contemplating deep questions about life. He's taking opportunity to share with them the truth. And he says, he yells out, hey, inescapably religious people who know better, who owe your very existence to your creator, who, he goes on to say in verse 22, or in verse 26, who from one man made every nation and all mankind. And he says, even your poets acknowledge him, verse 28. Then he moves to say, repent, turn from your sins, awaken from your blindness. Verse 30, there's coming a day of judgment where we must all stand before this Jesus Christ. We know this is true. Why? Because God has raised him from the dead. That is your basic outline for preaching the gospel. Man knows better, yet he is in sin. He is without excuse. Even creation itself testifies. And when we tell the uh, sinner the truth, we call him to account to answer to a God whose power and holiness requires perfection. In denying this fact and living according to our own sinful desires, we betray our sin and we are guilty in light of him. He is the holy and righteous one, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the covenant, who in his grace and mercy held out salvation for those who trust and believe in him. He is the author of life. All these references speak to who God is in relationship to man. Therefore, in light of this, change your ways, turn from your sin, and accept your Savior. This is the true power and piety to which Peter testifies. He says that the people denied this holy and righteous one, verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So kids, you remember a few weeks before when the people had a choice. The Pilate would release unto them Barabbas, a notorious, depraved criminal, or Jesus, the perfect second person of the Trinity. God become man, totally innocent, whose only crime was proclaiming to the people how they might be saved and the glories of the kingdom. 
and healing those who are sick and oppressed of the devil, raising the dead and cleansing the leper. Yet they cried out, denying the Holy and Righteous One, crucify him, crucify him, his blood be on us and our children. Wishing a curse upon themselves and denying the author of life in exchange for a notorious murderer. You denied the Holy and the Righteous One. In this, Peter, as a covenant lawsuit prosecutor, everyone knows what a prosecutor is, right? They are an agent of the law who makes the case for the guilt of a certain party. What is the law in this case? It's that covenant I was talking about. It's God's demands for man. Who is the attorney, the lawyer, the prosecutor? It's Peter who is representing Jesus Christ, and he's pointing to the law, their relationship with the Lord, and their blindness to the holy and the powerful, and denying him and asking, trading the Savior for a murderer, and in this committing such great blasphemy against the Lord. And he's making this case that they are unequivocally, beyond a shadow of a doubt, caught red-handed guilty. He proves this case against his hearers, as he did in his first resurrection message. This Jesus Christ, you're guilty of condemning to a death of Roman execution a man who is innocent and did nothing wrong. He establishes the guilt of his hearers according to the word of God as a gospel prerequisite and priority. This is a pattern for us. The gospel is truly proclaimed when we establish the guilt of ourselves and our hearers in light of that standard of righteousness, the word of God. The word of the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the one who is holy and righteous and the author of life, according to his demands, his standard, his character, his word, how do we measure up? Well, we find with the words of Paul that all have fallen short of the glory of God in this regard. And these hearers heard this right as Peter makes his case as a covenant lawyer or prosecutor declaring them guilty. For what will we be held responsible? The same thing, the transgression of the Lord's holy and righteous law. From this, Peter moves in verses 15 and 16 to proclaiming the name of Jesus and testifying to the resurrection. He says, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Hope is starting to come through now. We move from guilt to the message of hope in Christ, faith in Christ alone. Consider the occasion of this message. This is an awesome object lesson that God has given his church to follow in proclaiming the gospel. This man healing, man's healing provided an illustration for them, first of all, of sin and separation. Without time to turn there today, would you in your own time as you're able this week, turn to Leviticus 21 and read about the prohibitions of temple worship. As it turns out, in the symbolic law of old, the ceremonial law, if you were blind, if you had blemishes, if you were lame, you were not allowed into the privileged area, which was reserved for the symbolically holy to worship the Lord. This in the old covenant was a picture of sin and separation. It told the truth in this order of the worship 
that only that which had been made perfectly holy, consecrated and clean and presentable and whole was acceptable into the presence of Almighty God. So a lame man such as this man was, was therefore ostracized from the privileged communion and fellowship and union where God would meet man in that place of his Shekinah abiding glory when that cloud of his holy presence would meet with man in that temple proximity. When this man was healed, it signaled something though, not just that he could walk, praise God, I have the ability to run and to jump, but I suggest to you a greater praise, a greater thankfulness would fill his heart knowing that now he was free to enter the temple and worship the Lord. I believe that this man was probably a man of faith that was praying hope against hope that someday he could go through that gate beautiful and be presentable before the Lord. The picture of the healing of his feet and ankles told this message, that Jesus Christ in his resurrection power can raise from the dead those who are not worthy to stand in his presence and make them perfectly whole. What happened to this man's feet and this man's ankle is what happened to your heart when you confessed your sin and believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior. You see, the, it, the idea here is that no lame hearts, no blind, no corrupt souls are allowed. That's ultimately the, the message within the presence of an almighty God. But we serve a God with resurrecting power. This is why a conversion to Christianity, a true conversion to Christianity is described in resurrection terms or brand new life. You are born again. Whereas you were dead in your trespasses and sins, there is a resurrection miracle in calling you to new life when you are saved. Saved from what? Saved from your own death and saved from the judgment you deserved. And in this picture of this lame man being healed, he was now free according to the ceremonial terms to worship the Lord. But it was a picture of the resurrecting power to raise from the dead those who are lame in heart to worship the Lord and to be accepted into his presence. This was a miracle of communion, if you will, to render him able in this picture to fellowship in the temple. And also it was a miracle of new creation. It was a natural sign featuring the recreative power. And every true conversion is likewise, as I said, a recreative miracle. Those who are born again are new creations. They are made new in Christ. And spiritually, they can relate to this man. When your sins were washed away, when you realized that for the first time, didn't it make you want to walk and to leap and to praise the Lord? Don't lose that feeling. Or return to the table of the Lord in communion or to the fellowship of the Lord on Sundays, asking for him to give that back to you. Resurrection power makes all the difference. The disciples were emboldened, they had clarity. They went out with authority. As I said, this resurrection made all the difference. It turned them and transformed them from Christ-denying fear to civil authority-defying boldness. But that truth is as real and powerful today as if the Spirit applies it to our hearts as it was the day in which it was spoken. Jesus Christ is still in the resurrecting business. And if he has resurrected you, be thankful and return to that joy of your salvation and look forward to being welcomed by the Spirit, by the Lord, into the presence of His people to worship Him, recognizing that He has made you fit for that. He has cleansed you, consecrated you for the worship, true worship, because of that recreative miracle He has done in your heart.
So as Peter, the resurrection witness, proclaims the gospel, he points first to the true power and the true piety or holiness. Secondly, he points to what was foretold and fulfilled. This would be verses 17 through 21 back in our text. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. What God foretold, he thus fulfilled. First of all, Peter points to what the uh, author uh, Isaiah foretold in his prophecy of the suffering servant and his calling. There are several references we might look to in the Old Testament that suddenly become clear in the light of this day in history when Jesus had risen from the dead. Three of them you might mark. First, Genesis 22. Again, not time to turn there, but you'll recall that's where Abraham leads his son to the hill of sacrifice, Isaac. And you kids remember what happened. There was wood placed upon the back of Isaac, just like the cross was placed upon the back of God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ. There was a hill, Moriah, just like there was a hill, Calvary, as the son to be sacrificed ascended to that place where there needed to be atonement and a substitute and a wrath absorbing. The word is propitiation, sacrifice in order uh, to make things right with God again. But as they get to the top of that hill, And with the fire and the knife in hand, Abraham, the covenant father, raises up the knife and an angel says, go ahead or stop. Kids, the angel says stop. So Abraham lowers the knife. God will provide my son. And there in the distance is a ram, a substitute sacrifice was slaughtered in the place of Isaac. There would come at this foretold a day of one who would come, a son who would suffer who would be that very lamb. As John said, behold the lamb of God. And this time the knife of God the Father would not stop, but would plunge, as it were, into his side, into his hands and feet, which was necessary, according to another passage that prophesied the sufferings of Jesus Christ, Isaiah 53, in order for our sins to be paid for. This is the gospel. This was the suffering that was foretold. Genesis 22 Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, all spoke of a suffering servant, Messiah, whose hands and feet would be pierced, whose back would be laced with stripes, whose head would be pierced with thorns, who would die in our place, but he would not stay dead. Praise the Lord. After accomplishing the will of the Father and satisfying the payment for our sin, he would yet rise again. Nevertheless, what was foretold Peter proclaims, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In this, Peter preaches Jesus Christ crucified as the means or the instrument of man's redemption. How can you be forgiven this great sin of killing this man who was God in flesh, who did nothing wrong, and asking that a murderer be given in his place? How can you be forgiven of something as horrible as this? Ironically and gloriously, It was in that very death the people were responsible for, whereby they might be redeemed, that is, bought back from the bondage and punishment they deserve, atoned, that is, their sins covered by the blood of someone else, Jesus Christ. This is what was foretold that Peter points to, fulfilled in Jesus. 
Well, last year at this time, I marveled at Luke 24. We're not told specifically, but in general terms, there's two on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus, the ascended or the resurrected Jesus, walks with them, unbeknownst to them at first, and explains how all the scriptures speak to him. And we wonder, I wonder, you know, what did he say? What might that glorious Bible study have sounded like? Well, I submit to you, we're reading of it right here. What was told to the disciples on the road to Emmaus was that God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, like Abraham foretold in his offering of his son, and in fact, a ram in his place. Or David, as he proclaims in Psalm 22, that the bulls of Bashan, that is the forces of evil, surrounded me. And eventually it gives way to praise. But before that, his, he was crushed or he was pierced and, and so forth. And the anguish of his soul is expressed as the crucifixion is prophesied and that glorious hymn. And then furthermore, Isaiah in chapter 53, as Jesus goes over these texts and shares them with his disciples, they would then share them with the apostles. And now they would be proclaimed boldly on the lips of the early church. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. What was foretold in all of the prophets and the whole counsel of the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus. This verse 19, by the way, is the compelling response. Do you remember how the crowds felt in Peter's first resurrection sermon when the covenant prosecutor declared them guilty and proved his case? They said, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? And the text says they were caught to the heart. We all know what that piercing guilt is like. If you've ever been caught red-handed, you have that sinking feeling in your stomach. You know that you're guilty and indefensible and there's nowhere to hide from that which you deserve. The crowds felt that way. They had killed their Savior. And likewise here, no doubt many felt those same pangs of guilt. And so what is the response that this sermon compels well, verse 19, respond this way. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Repent means change. Turn from your waywardness, your sinfulness, serving self, your own selfish desires, as we talked about last week, and turn to the Lord. Confess your sins. Ask Him for His forgiveness. Trust that Jesus Christ died for you. As his sermon progresses, we hear the apostle testimony to the, testify to the fulfillment of the messages of all, all of Scripture. Peter is proclaiming, and the heart, and we hear uh, the fulfillment of even Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah 59:20. Here, the prophet had said, "And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression," declares the Lord. Mark that reference, if you would, if you're taking notes. Isaiah 59, 20. Ages before Jesus came, about 600 years, a prophet proclaimed, a redeemer will come to Zion in those, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. The fulfillment of that very text is taking place in Acts chapter 3 as we read to Jacob. Men of Israel, Israel, another name for Jacob. Those who knew or who were of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are hearing the message of who the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is. And then the call, according to Isaiah 59, and in the words of Peter as he preaches, is to turn 
from your transgression, meaning sin, or breaking God's law, or falling short of his holiness. And this is a declaration of the Lord. Again, Peter is speaking with authority. It's not his power and piety, not his authority that he is referencing, but indeed the authority of Jesus Christ. As an ambassador of him, he is proclaiming that the Redeemer has come. He has suffered as proclaimed. And since you are all guilty, now repent and turn to him. Verse 20 and 21 answer a question that must be burning in the hearts of his people, of the people hearing, I should say. Think of it this way. Well, he came and he's gone now. And I did not recognize him, not in the least. In fact, I condemned him as one worthy of a torturous death. What was wrong with me? Why didn't I recognize him? And if he comes again, how might I, I recognize him the second time? Peter addresses these questions. He says, repent, and then, in his, and then in, connect that to verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom the heavens must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Repentance ushers in times of refreshing. That is to be remade or made new. Paul says it this way, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you have turned from your sins, if you've placed faith in Christ, then make it your life's goal to be saturated with his teaching. As you love and appreciate and grow in your understanding of the word of God, it will refresh your mind. It will make you new. It will cleanse you. It will sanctify you. It will put you in the frame of soul that you will recognize Jesus Christ when he comes again. And what sense does Jesus come? Well, multiple senses. There are times of reckoning in the course of history that are well described as a coming of the Lord. And these come at certain times of God's appointed yet temporal judgment. And for those who don't recognize him when he comes, then they experience this horrible atrocity, this horrible calamity, and they don't have opportunity to turn to him. But for those who recognize his coming, they cry out to him in their hour of need. Jesus comes at the end of every single life. He knows the number of our days. And at one point, we will also come to the last enemy death. But there are only a few who will defeat it. And those who will defeat the last enemy are those who are prepared for the coming of the Lord in our own death by placing faith in Jesus Christ. And for you, death is just a doorway into eternal glorious reunion with an almighty God. And then, of course, Jesus comes at the conclusion of all of history. And at this point, when his judgment throne is set up and all who stand before him must give an account for their sins, where will we be? In two places. Either gathered with the sheep, the metaphor as it describes us, where we plead the blood of Jesus to render us worthy to be welcomed by an almighty God, or there's a separate group, the goats, as the metaphor Jesus used describes them. And of them he will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. These are those who did not recognize Jesus at his second coming because they yet remain dead and blind in their sins. Peter preaches the gospel foretold and fulfilled, drawing the attention to the people. And if, they and if they turn from their sin to this realization, the assurance is this, the next time when he comes, you will welcome him with open arms. 
you will jump and you will dance and you will praise and say, Hallelujah, my salvation has drawn nigh. You will be like those children on Palm Sunday who said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David. Even babies, children can recognize these things if the Spirit changes their heart. There are those who welcome Jesus coming in the triumphal entry because their hearts had been changed to recognize the Messiah. And you can have the assurance you will join their voices on that great second coming one day or when he calls you home if you repent of your sins and place faith in him today. This is Peter's message, and it rings true today as it did when he first spoke. Finally, this resurrection witness, Peter, proclaims the gospel of Moses and his legacy. He references one prophet specifically in verse 22. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. What reference is Peter citing as he proclaims this? Well, we go back to Deuteronomy 1 verse 15. Listen, the Lord your God, this is Moses speaking, will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This is the message from Moses all the way to Jesus. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus as the greater Moses, if you will. Hebrews 3 is quite clear. Hebrews 7 goes on to say, not only is he the greater Moses who did serve in a limited priest-like role, but this, the high priest, the ultimate and sufficient one, Jesus, is a priest of a different order, according to the order of Melchizedek, whose authority and power is represented in his indestructible life. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead declared him the invincible priest. He is the one who defeated death. He was the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. He was the greater Moses and is the greater Moses. Peter's logic goes this way. Those who sincerely follow Moses must necessarily bow to Christ. Can't claim to be a follower of Moses, a respecter of religion, appreciate the Bible, or have respect or follow Moses in any way, or the prophets of old, or the intent or the teaching of Scripture, unless you bow to Christ. This is the message of Moses, and it rings true today. If you don't recognize him, then you're missing something. Peter expounds the sense in which Christ is superior to Moses, that he rose from the dead. And as God has raised up this prophet, this priest, and this king, he not only has raised him up to the people to proclaim his truth, but he has gone further. He has raised him from the dead, so that by this obvious and evident power of an indestructible life, he is proclaimed as the greater Moses to come the fulfillment of the hope that Moses represented. Think of Moses. He was the hope for the people to defy Pharaoh, to pick a fight with the greatest of all authorities and to win. He was the agent of great wonders of the Lord who had his proclamation defeated the false gods, the pantheon of ancient Egypt. He was their leader and guide attended by that cloud and fire which God dispatched his presence ever with them who led them those 40 years across the wilderness into the promised land. 
He was the mediator who received in his own arms the word of God written by the divine finger of Yahweh, giving the message of righteousness on Sinai. He was the one who brought them all the way up to the threshold of the promised land, but did not bring them through. Why? Because he was insufficient. As great as Moses was, he himself a sinner succumbed to death before he could cross into the promised land. But there is one that would rise up to lead us out of, this, of the bondage of our own sin into the promised land of restored covenant with the Almighty. And this one would go not only into the promised land physically, but spiritually. He would pass into the Holy of Holies and we with him, even through death itself, if we are in Christ. And this is what the message of the greater Moses, the hope that it holds out for us. Peter preaches Moses and his legacy fulfilled in Christ. He says, Peter, that this is a universal testimony of all the prophets. Verse 23, it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets, he says, who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Samuel, of course, anointed a very important king. Kids, do you know the king that Samuel anointed? Shout it out if you know the name. Samuel anointed what king? Anyone know? He went to Jesse's house. They paraded 11 sons before him. Not that one, not that one. Where's the youngest? His name was? David, that's correct. Thanks, Theo. Samuel anointed a king, David. And a prophet who would soon follow him, Nathan, declared of him in 2 Samuel 7 that his kingdom would last forever, that there would be a son of David who would never be dethroned. And this, of course, was a reiteration of that covenant hope. This is another moment in time where the prophets testified to the son of David, the, uh, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the greater Moses, all these pictures leading up to Jesus Christ, the universal prophetic testimony. This uh, example cited in Samuel, he was a prophet, of course, who anointed David and whom it was also prophesied in his book, in the book that bears his name, that a son and a kingdom without end would come. As Peter brings his message to a close, to, he returns to this idea of covenant and accountability. In verses 25 and 26, he says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You are without excuse. This is your heritage. You know this if you are not blind in your sin. Verse 26, God having raised up his servant, or speaking of Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. There are two senses, of course, that it could be said that God raised Jesus up to them first. This, the first century Israelites in the incarnation, Jesus taking on human flesh and being born of a woman in Bethlehem was sent, was appointed, and later was recognized at his baptism by that voice that proclaimed from glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in this, he is appointed for his ministry, he is sent and he is appointed to the first century Israelites, to them first, as it were, by order of, uh, uh, by order of sequence here, right? Well, there's another sense in which Jesus Christ was raised. Not only was he raised up, 
in his humanity to proclaim the message of the kingdom, but he was raised up from death itself and proclaimed his kingdom still for another 40 days in his glorified body. And here again, Jesus was sent first to these, the first hearers of Peter's message. This is covenantal accountability. Peter speaks in the first instance of Christ Jesus, who was raised up, anointed, and appointed to his hearers. Additionally, this Jesus was sent by way of the gospel and apostolic delegates whose office and authority has just been confirmed by miracle. Every time the gospel is accurately proclaimed, there is a sending of the message of Jesus, if you will, to the hearer. So by extension, God raises up this same Jesus from the dead. He raises him uh, through, or he raises him among his people in his incarnation to minister. And it, the, all these things are here testified to by eyewitness. But all men who are born of Adam have a covenantal accountability to the Lord as well. And more individually who have heard the gospel in some sense, even Resurrection Sunday, or as it's popularly called Easter, is an occasion that marks traditionally the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In all these ways, Jesus Christ is sent the message of his, himself and is, goes forth to the hearer, repent and believe. History itself, having witnessed Jesus in his incarnation, his resurrection, his ascension unto glory, and the testimony of his apostles in his holy word, which is so a commonly known at a surface level, yet not in the heart, even in our day. Nevertheless, in all these ways, the word of God goes forth. And when it does, so does the accountability. You have heard of Jesus. You have witnessed to him. You yourselves know that you are thus without excuse. So what is your response? There are two appropriate responses to a sermon like Peter's or inasmuch as his words have been reflected in my sermon today, this message as well. Two appropriate responses. If you have not bowed the knee before Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted in him as your Savior and Lord, heed the call to repent, to turn from your sin, and to trust that he died for you. And the second appropriate response is to be reminded of this and to be encouraged and brought back to the implications and the emboldening, tr emboldening truth that would give you courage of the fact of the resurrection. I have no doubt when Peter proclaimed these things, and when he had faith even to be arrested for the name of Jesus Christ, it was great encouragement to the church. If the church would ever grow weary in well-doing, if they would ever be discouraged in their task, our enemy is too great. Peter would rise up, no doubt, and say, no way. Our enemy has been defeated. Don't you recall? Our Savior destroyed death when he rose on the third day. Therefore, we need not fear the Roman army, the temple guards, the Pharisees and Sadducees, imprisonment or martyrdom or whatever. We are privileged to suffer for his name because Jesus Christ is our conquering Savior. So this is the message today. Where do you stand in light of his resurrection? Have you turned from your sins? Have you repented? If you have, hear again the power of what you testify to in your heart, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then be emboldened to stand upon that truth and to proclaim it to others that we might join the voice of the early church in proclaiming Christ crucified 
resurrected and ascended and pray that God might use these means to turn our world upside down for his glory and to introduce a whole new generation to the resurrected Messiah. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to pay attention once again to the most important things in all of history and in our experience. There's nothing greater, Lord, than the truth that you rose from the dead and that you died for our sins and that you ever live making intercession for us and that you are assembling from yourself from every corner of the earth a bride to praise your name forever. There's nothing more glorious and powerful than the truth that Jesus Christ can work in our hearts by the power of his spirit, a recreative miracle that we might be born again unto newness of life, never to die, but to live with him worshiping eternally and forever. Lord, I pray that these things would be freshly alive in our souls today as a result of hearing your word. And if there are any lost in the hearing of this message today, may your spirit work upon them. And as they cry out, what must they do to be saved? May they also hear from your word the answer. Trust in Jesus Christ, the Savior and Sovereign, the one who died in the place of sinners and now ever lives to intercede for them and to welcome his church upon his glorious second coming one day. Come in, the bride for which I died, and dine with me forever at the marriage supper of the Lamb. May everyone in the hearing of this message be found there by the power of his resurrecting gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.